In mid-August, the Wall Street Journal published what seemed like quite the scoop. Putin rejected role for U.S. forces near Afghanistan at summit with Biden, the newspaper reported. After Afghanistan withdrawal, U.S. military hopes to position forces temporarily near Afghanistan, but Putin told Biden that Moscow objects. American journalists were rediscovering the war in Afghanistan as it was ending, and it was good timing for the Wall Street Journal. Except the Russian newspaper Kommersant reported the same story a whole month earlier, with the additional detail that Moscow had offered Washington use of Russian bases in Central Asia. Today you'll hear from the author of that story, Yelena Chernenko. Hello there. Welcome back to The Russia Guy. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, and this is a podcast where I talk Russian news, politics, and culture, and I interview various journalists, academics, and activists doing, you know, interesting things in the field. As always, check your podcast audio player for chapter headers that allow you to skip to specific segments in the conversation ahead. And you can check buzzsprout.com for an automatically generated transcript of everything that's said. On today's show, as I mentioned at the top of the episode... My guest is Elena Chernyenka, a special correspondent at the newspaper Commerçant, where she focuses on issues of cybersecurity, non-proliferation, and arms control. Heavy stuff. Now, I already knew all that when I asked Elena for an interview, but when I did a little research to make sure that I was getting her, her title correct and all, that, all the headline information, I learned that she holds a PhD in history from Moscow State University. Now, longtime listeners of this podcast will know that I've personally bailed on two doctorates, one in political science and one in history. The first one was in history. So naturally, my first question to Elena was how she went from getting a PhD in history to being one of Russia's foremost international affairs reporters. I got there gradually um, for many years working, uh, for example, at the Russian edition of the Newsweek magazine. I was uh, writing mostly about um, social problems and uh, society. So I would be writing about uh, things like um, unions of housewives or, for example, legalization of prostitution in European countries and whether this is apl- applicable to Russia um, and all kinds of these things. Um, was it? Did you think it was it applicable? No, <laughs> not really. <laughs> but it was fun. Uh, I mean, that was one of the of the most interesting uh, trips that I took as a reporter. Me and a photographer, we went to Germany and actually visited two legalized prostitution houses, which was quite a unique experience. And when we meet with uh, this photographer, Andrei Rodakov, he's a good friend of mine. 
we every time we remember that story because it was just uh, such uh, an, such a different trip from everything that that both of us are doing right now. Him working from for Bloomberg, uh, shooting all kinds of uh, industrial pictures most of the time, and me working uh, at Commerzant writing about foreign policy. So um, that was quite a different time back then. But yeah, it was gradually I that I came to these topics that I'm writing about for maybe ten years, mostly right now. So what was like the first, what was your, how did you first arrive at this? Like, what was your first step into the kind of reporting that you're doing now? This like big international level stuff. Do you remember like the, one of the first stories you did? It was two things um, on cyber. It was um, uh, WikiLeaks and um, then this anonymous movement that was um, this uh, um, hackers movement that were fighting for the rights uh, of WikiLeaks. Um, I was... I guess, uh, very intrigued and, uh, maybe, uh, had romantic views about uh, what can be achieved with such means. And I became very interested in cybersecurity, um, and the cause that WikiLeaks was fighting for. And I thought it was, I personally had uh, a very big interest in that. And, and I started researching about cybersecurity and gradually writing about it. And, and when it came to uh, arms control and non-proliferation, one of the, I would say, the main event that led me to that topic um, was a seminar which was organized by the Peer Center um, in Vienna, where they had a meeting um, of uh, Russian and um, American um, experts in these issues, uh, and not only experts, but also uh, the current um, officials. Um, and there I've heard uh, many things that I haven't heard before. I kind of just stepped in from outside in this, into this fascinating topic. And I just really felt with every piece of my body, this is it. This is something where I see the news. I, even if it's at night and I will wake up and, and get up and get myself to write a story because this is so fascinating that that's really, that's much more interesting than unions of housewives. I see. <laughs> Have have the issues that you st so when you started you said it was about ten years ago when you came to these kind of you know big international issues would you say that in the last decade it's that that has changed a lot specifically as it affects you know Russian foreign policy and Russia's place in those in those international stories have you seen a lot of changes over the last ten years I would say that um, in the beginning like 2011 12 13 uh, it was more about cooperation. So we would be writing about all these projects that um, Russia would be having uh, with its international partners, um, in, including in the West. Um, and the the ideas that they had for the future, for example, with NATO, there was all kinds of projects um, on Afghanistan security, on uh, common uh, projects on the fight of terrorism. For example, um, there was a fascinating project, which is called Standex, where they... Uh, Together with NATO, Russia developed a tool to search um, within closed spaces for bombs. For example, it was tested for the first time, I think, in in the sub, uh, in the subway in Paris, where they could look um, up to four forty meters if there's any um, bomb devices um, in this area, um, and all kind of these things. Uh, up to 2014, it was more about cooperation. And then it started becoming more about confrontation. So with the with the Crimea and Ukraine exactly. business, mm -hmm. so that that certainly affects the the direction of stories and like the overall tone. I like like you like you said, has that changed the working environment as well? Because I know that you know working so closely with the Foreign Affairs Ministry, 
and reporting on their actions. Does have you found that that changes like just the daily kind of the the tone of your daily work, or is has it is it has that kind of remained stable? And you're talking when you talk about the shift, you're talking more about kind of at the international level, or have you felt that like on a personal level? Well, I felt it right away because before 2014, um, I would be traveling within the pool of the Russian for- Ministry of Foreign Affairs quite often also to Western countries. Um, right. It would be at least uh, one trip every week or every two weeks. Um, and many of those were to Western countries and then all of a sudden it stopped. Yeah, actually, I, I remember, I think it was like it was like six months ago or maybe even a year ago I wrote you and I was, I was trying to get you on the podcast. And I was saying, like, do you think you'll have time? And you're like, well... Tomorrow I'm going to be in Tunisia, and then Thursday I'm going to be in, you know, Cairo. And it's just like <laughs> you're ping ponging all over the world. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm never going to get this woman on the show. She's constantly in movement. But I guess COVID helped out in that regard. Although, are you moving again more now, or it's getting more now, um, but not as much as before COVID. It's not even comparable. But when you look into ge- geography before 2014 and uh, after that, it's different. I mean, it's kind of getting back uh, a bit into that more balanced uh, uh, outreach, I would say, for example, because Lavrov, uh, Sergei Lavrov, uh, the foreign minister, just went to several European countries. But for like two years, there was almost none of that. And of course, we felt that right away. Um, and yes, the topics that you write about, that they would be so much different than it's nothing about cooperation. Uh, anymore, it's more about confrontation, mutual suspicions, all kinds of sanctions, uh, limitations. Um, yeah, it's uh, the, the whole the whole picture of what we write about today um, in foreign policy is, of course, very much different. How would you characterize the Russian foreign and security policy process? Like, would you, would you say that from what you've witnessed covering it now for a decade closely, is it a fairly well institutionalized process, you know, with like clear procedures uh, that, that all the different, you know, actors and players are following? Or would you say it's like more ad hoc and more dependent and kind of constantly shifting based on, you know, like the, the issues and... Um, like the various personalities was it so is it, i mean is it, is it more about like individual personalities or are there formal procedures that kind of keep it going steady i think it's both of them um sometimes you see um you see a trend you see a strategy you see a real thinking for for years ahead sometimes you see moscow reacting to events from outside uh, and it's a balance of both but of course um um i'm writing mostly about the ministry of foreign affairs and um the minister, Sergei Lavrov, he clearly states every time that uh, his ministry is has a coordinating role that it's playing, but it's the president who decides. Um, and really, it's uh, Vladimir Putin who decides on the most uh, important things uh, that Russia does in foreign policy. Um, the MFA uh, might have more influence on like secondary issues. But on the the pri- uh, on the priorities, um, of course, the Kremlin is the one that decides, and uh, then the diplomats are the one that are implementing it. So I would say it's a balance of uh, institutionalized processes, but also of decision making that is centered around one person. Mm-hmm. 
do you get the sense that 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 Vladimir Putin is more interested in foreign policy than he is with domestic policy? I don't know if you're familiar with Tatyana Stanovaya, but she's like regularly argued this point that Putin only reluctantly does the domestic policy stuff, even though that's kind of where his constituents would like him to focus, that he's more interested in sort of cementing his legacy in global history. And I would imagine that that would make work for the MFA more difficult because he's kind of more interested in what they're doing as opposed to, say, somebody dealing with housing or something. That they're, they're, you know, the Kremlin might be more, their attitude might be more like, just get it, get it done. I don't want to know how, just make it happen. Whereas with the, with foreign affairs, I would imagine that Putin would be more involved and, and uh, the oversight would be greater. Did you have any sense if that's the case? I love reading Tatiana Stanavaya and I admire <laughs> um, uh, her analysis um, very much. But when it comes to Putin, I, I'm always very, very careful about saying anything uh, or trying even to analyze anything that he might do, has done, has thought or might be thinking. Because I have the feeling that there's only one person in the world that knows what Putin thinks or wants and that's him personally. Um so I would not be judging uh, if he likes, if he's more interested in foreign policy or in, uh, in minor issues uh, within the country, that domestic foreign, uh, domestic policy. Um, it's so difficult to, to try to understand and kind of unlock and hack him um, that I'm not even trying to do this. Like criminology, it's subject that I don't touch. Gotcha. Okay. But actually, On the subject uh, let of, me add yeah? this. We have a correspondent. Please, please. Um, Andrei Kolesnikov, um, I guess that you, you know him uh, as well. I mean, he is writing about Putin personally for more, for like since Putin has been in power for the first day. And I think that out of all of the reporters, Andrei might be the only person, uh, that I would say has a feeling for what actually might Vladimir Putin be thinking or maybe doing next. Um, but even I think for uh, for Andrei Kalevnikov, there's all always room for surprises from the Kremlin. Uh, we will see what will be happening. For example, in 2024, Andrei is quite sure that uh, Vladimir Putin will step down, and he has said it and written it on Facebook and and elsewhere um, a few times. So I'm very very interested to see if he's right on this, if his gut feeling is right or not. What do you think Kalevnikov's secret is? Is it is it access, or is it just that he has a intuition about Putin that most others do not. It's access. Uh, at the same time, he is uh, making an effort of um, not getting too close. Um, he has described it quite um, well, I think, in one of the interviews that he gave. Um, but he says he views it all like a theatrical show on the stage and he's in the front row. So he has a good seat, but he's not on stage. He watches this from, from the auditorium. Um, but I think he... His secret, one of the main secrets is uh, that he just has this unique writing style. I'm not sure when, uh, when it gets translated into English, whether it still has this charm. And um, I remember some of the phrases from his articles from years back. Um, sometimes they are painfully long um, and that hurts. Um, but most of the times I really love reading him. <laughs> gotcha. I, I recently spoke to, uh, for this for this podcast. I recently interviewed Anton Barbashin about schools of thought within Russian foreign policy, and he he um, he shared an argument with me. I, I think it appeared someone else made this argument recently, but he he was arguing that that um, that even though everyone in Russia's kind of foreign policy school speaks like a realist, there are scholars and analysts who have 
other perspectives, whether it's you know liberal internationalism or whatever, but they're all kind of forced by essentially political rhetoric of the day to talk like realists. Do you think that 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 is true? Do you think that I mean, do you think that I guess it's a two part question. One, do you think realism, this notion that you know really only raw power matters, is that the singular driving logic of Russian foreign policy, or is it actually more complicated than that? And if it is more complicated. Do you see serious ideological divisions among the Russian foreign policy elite, or is there consensus? It seemed that it really became the leading school of thought and driver in Russian foreign policy. It wasn't like that, um, I think, in the beginning of the 2000s, um, but then it changed uh, over time. And today, clearly, realism is um, the ex- ex- uh, the the way that you would describe um, and um, um, Explain Russian foreign policy, the main drivers of it. Um, I don't think that that the, that Moscow came to this conclusion by itself. Uh, it seems that really in the beginning of the 2000s there was much more of um, maybe not romanticism, maybe not naiveness, but um, some other drivers as well. But then it changed over time. And today, yes, I think that that's the that's really the main the school of thought. Even if you read, for example, I. Um, it isn't translated into English, but I'm waiting for it very much to be translated into English. There's a fascinating new book that came out by the head of the Moscow Carnegie Center, Dmitry Trenin, just a few months ago on Russia's foreign policy. And it's very much about realism. I mean, for me, he kind of explained the thing that I was thinking and feeling, but uh, it's always wonderful if a great um, analyst puts it uh, into, into phrases, into words, and you see, ah, Exactly, that's it. So um, I would highly re- recommend that book. So you read Stanley, you read Trenin, and they're both at, at, they both write for Carnegie. Are there other experts and sources besides your own reporting, obviously, that, that you recommend to people, whether in English or Russian? Fyodor Lukyanov, definitely. I read everything that he writes, and he's actually also about realism mostly, but he has also this wonderful cyn- kind of cynical view um, on things that was a kind of a black humor sometimes. Um, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, there's other experts on, on specific areas, for example, um, on all things Russia, Asia. It's Alexander Gabuyev, also from the Carnegie Center. But then, of course, I very much value the work that um, the Russian experts uh, do on things that I mostly write about on arms control, non-proliferation. There is Andrei Baklitsky, there's Mitri Stefanovich. Um, and other and other people that really I follow everything that they write and comment about and I really uh, value very much that there's Twitter which allows um, experts uh, on different issues from all over the world to be communicating real time on these things. In terms of your job, it it's, it puts you in close contact with state officials in Russia and you know I assume in other countries as well. So you're especially you know involved with with the the Russian Foreign Affairs Ministry. And I'm wondering, has your job changed very much as the Russian state's relationship with journalists has become kind of more tense over this year, over the course of this year? But I mean, in in recent years, I suppose, you know, even like, you know, recently, there's been a lot of attention on the foreign ministry himself, and his his personal life even. And I wonder, does that affect your work? Does that make it difficult to talk to these officials? Or is it, is it, it's, it doesn't, it, it hasn't really affected anything? The situation right now that that uh, many colleagues of mine are facing uh, in Russia, working for different outlets, um, is difficult, definitely, and it's getting more difficult. 
um, this campaign uh, with branding people for an agent, I, I think it's it's um, stupid. I, I really um, don't understand. I mean, I see, I uh, know the logic of the Russian authorities who say that it's a it's mirroring the the things that the U.S. and other countries do. But I think it's it's quite uh, illogical to take bad practices from other countries and try to implement it in uh, in your own countries, explaining that we are doing the same. And uh, several of colleagues that I have been working with as other outlets, um, for example, at the Russian Newsweek, are now branded uh, foreign agents, and I know them personally, and I know how how much they care for Russia, how much they want um, our country to be benefiting and flourishing and just becoming better. And if they're criticizing events in in, uh, in Russia, they're doing this because they really love this country. They're living here, the, their kids are living here, and they want to stay here, just, just want life here to become better. That's why um, they are sometimes very critical. Uh, when it comes to uh, my work, for some reason, uh, it feels that sometimes that we're working at still kind of an oasis. It's hard to explain. I mean, um, it's really hard to explain, for example, when... Uh, people ask me that don't know how the Ministry of Foreign Affairs works with journalists or how Maria Zaharova, the spokesperson, works with journalists. But um, I can really say that that it still works. I can do um, the job that I have been doing. And yeah, you see that I'm having difficulties talking about this because it's uh, very hard to explain. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I don't have the... Luckily, I don't have difficulties um, writing about the things that I'm writing about, uh, security issues, uh, uh, Russia's foreign policy, getting sometimes uh, trying to get scoops on all of these issues. It has become different, but it's not, it's not more difficult at the moment. Um, that doesn't mean that it uh, applies for all of Commerçant. Uh, one of my colleagues uh, has been jailed uh, more than a year ago, Ivan Safronov. He's being accused of... Uh, state treason and i know that that uh, my colleagues that are writing about um domestic uh, issues um especially about uh, the political life in russia they're facing uh difficulties uh, of all kinds but um i mean even though it's getting really uh more difficult to do the job um as good as you want it to do i think we still have an important mission trying to actually give a quality product to our readers. Um, just as uh, any, just as many years ago, just as today, giving all kinds of views on one issue. Might they be conflicting if there's two sides or three sides? Um, quoting um, any experts that is criticizing Russia or the Russian government, just as we did before that. So, yeah, I, I would say that we're lucky. In terms of the the future for Russian journalism and journalists, do you? Th- I mean, obviously, I mean things seem to be still getting a bit worse, and you know, presumably they have a ways to go before anything gets better. Do you have any like, not necessarily recommendations or advice for Russian journalists, but one trend I'm seeing is that by being pushed kind of to the periphery or b- by being made to feel persecuted, a lot a lot of journalists it seems will turn their sort of sights on. 
the state officials themselves. And so that's one reason why I think, you know, we're seeing investigative reports about senior federal ministers and their love lives and their, you know, their property holdings and so on. Maybe we wouldn't have seen that before. It seems like, you know, that there's a sense that like, okay, the gloves are off now. We're in open warfare. Do you think that's going to make things worse? Or do you think that the the sort of the deci- the 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 change will not come from how journalists behave. It'll come from state policy, or like, how do you see the situation resolving or changing somehow? Um, you probably have felt from my previous answer that it's really difficult to me to uh, for me to talk about these issues. Not because I can't, but because they they hard to articulate. Exactly, they touch me so deeply, and and, and I'm thinking about uh, all kinds of aspects of these processes. Uh, all mm-hmm. the time, uh, and more yeah. and more uh, in the last time. Um, so I haven't articulated my personal position um, on all of these events, and uh, all that I that I feel that we can do in this situation. Uh, I can't speak like for other people uh, very much. Sure. I we we tried to discuss it with colleagues at at Commerzant at our foreign policy um, department. There's eight of us, and um, so kind of. How do we work with um, all of this? I mean, the world is going crazy, definitely. And foreign policy is just absolutely crazy. Every day you 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 watch and see things that would have not been imaginable, I guess, before. Maybe uh, every generation of journalists is saying that, but it feels very, very bad right now. Like you wake up and you think nothing will surprise me anymore, but it does every time. So what's your mission? How do you How do you go through this? I mean, how do you still... Uh, remain kind of sober and with a cool head uh, and actually do your work. And and uh, believe me, I feel every second week or maybe even more often that I be sh- I should be going to some newspaper and write about gardening or something with flowers. And that should be much more reassuring and relaxing. But um, we feel that our mission is to really try to do the same quality and objective journalism as before under all circumstances under all limitations with everything coming in um, at us try to do our our job as good as we can as long as it's possible and it's possible Um, for example take Crimea right a very very difficult issue at the moment where um, where even in the words that you use um, your position will be uh, articulated in why or the other way. Um, I'm not talking about uh, my personal opinion on, on this because it doesn't matter here. It's only the way that, like, uh, Commerçant would uh, write about these events. So um, I really appreciated um, our paper to try to be as balanced as possible, even uh, with the most delicate moments, uh, using the wording that would uh, reflect on all the different opinions on this. It's difficult for me to explain this in English because um, I can only say the the Russian words that that would matter here, like very very pro government um, outlets uh, or governmental out state media would uh, much more often use the word vasyedinenia, which would be like reunification, showing that this process of 2014 was historically absolutely justified and the way that it should have been, right? Um, then uh, government critical papers or Western papers, they would use the word annexation, showing that it's an illegal process, um, some kind of crime that Russia committed. And and we were trying to to 
do as balanced as it can, mostly using the word so Crimea joining um, Russia, the going into Russia, uh, which shows what happened in reality, right? Because Crimea is a part of Russia now, but not giving it any emotional judgment, uh, none, no ideological base. And that shows, with every, like, with all, there's so many de de delicate issues where you really have to choose very carefully your wording that, yeah, that hasn't been there before. But it doesn't uh, mean that it's not possible to make quality journalism. It's still possible. And if as many people that are doing this remain in the profession, don't go and write about gardening or, or immigrate or open bars and all that, I think that we can make it. So you're talking about experiencing burnout, essentially, for, you know, for different reasons. And you're, you're, you've stuck with this job now for, you know, 20 years. You've been doing the international stuff for half of that. How do you avoid burnout? You know, you, you don't write about gardening. Do you do you do gardening? Do you like how do you how do you keep your how do you keep yourself sane just, you know, for day to day? What do you what do you do in your spare time to, to stay sane? You know, I have a few flowers at home, but I think they're um, survival flowers. Like, I don't think that nobody cares as little for them as, as I do. I, I'm really surprised that, that there's still green stuff in my apartment. Um, I'm happy to have um, a husband that doesn't do journalism and doesn't do foreign policies. So we talk about normal things at home. Uh, I am not watching uh, TV uh, almost at all. Um, I'm I'm watching cooking shows uh, in German uh, because I like them so much. Uh, but that's all because um, when I see um, any kind of TV shows that do um, with foreign deal with foreign policy, uh, be it on Russian TV or on uh, Western TV, for, let's say like CNN or Fox News or so, I'm 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 starting to talk to the TV. I'm getting really nervous, uh, and uh, my husband is, he shuts it off because he says no. Um, um, you're getting nervous, you're getting all upset about things. Um, so I'm trying to do um, things that don't have anything to do with foreign policy. I have a few friends that are uh, both in the profession, like both of them are journalists, and I don't know how they do it at home. And how? You just get back home and it's all, to get, it's all again. Sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> I don't know. No, I think, I think um, just today I again was uh, writing to one of my friends that um, I think I'm in the wrong profession. What am I doing here? Um, I should be doing something totally different. And then I'm thinking, like, I haven't almost ever done anything different. And again, as I said in the beginning, these topics that I write about, I care about them so much that even if I was doing anything else, they would be still um, waking me up at night and keeping me thinking about them and wanting to write about them and talking to people about them, asking for them opinions. Um, and when my older son, who is five, he asked me what I'm doing as a profession, I said, I'm asking questions. That's the best thing that I can do is ask questions. I don't always get the answers, but we don't get the answers all the time, right? To the questions that we ask. So you can only do as best as you can. And, um, if there is a moment when you think, uh, you're not good enough in this, um, anymore, or you don't get at all any answers to your questions, then it may be time to leave. But I'm lucky that it's not the time right now.
That's my interview with Yelena Chernenka, a special correspondent at the newspaper Commerçant. Though her reporting is in Russian, please check the description of this podcast for a hyperlink to her Twitter profile, where she does often write in English. Thanks for listening to the show, everybody. An extra thanks to those of you who are contributing to the podcast at patreon.com slash Kevin Rothrock. Monthly and annual contributions are very welcome, and they're very possible. You can go to the website and do either of those things. They help me pay for the audio software subscriptions that make this show possible and sounding good. Everything's a subscription these days. You can't just buy something and get it forever. You got to keep paying for it. Anyway, thank you again, and until next time. Говорят мы пяки буки, как выносит на земля. Дайте что ли карты в руки погадать на короля. Ой-ля-ля, ой-ля-ля.